competition now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. I justified the uh, the 360 per- purchase because then I also jump it for Black Rifle. Oh, really? That's dope. Yeah. So the guys with the new A license, they don't. You got the fun job, man. They don't get the jump. I wish I could do that, you know? Yeah, man. It's it's all right. We can get into that. Um, Chris, will you please introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name's uh, Chris Cathers, um, former uh, Army, U.S. Army Green Beret. I uh, spent uh, several years afterwards uh, contracting with GRS um, for the for the agency. And uh, then I got in defense contracting and um, yeah, that's kind of a little bit of the background. We can get into the details though. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, well, welcome. Thanks for having me in your home. Uh, I appreciate that. It is uh, late in the evening in a rainy Atlanta suburb. We'll, we'll stick with that as far as location. Um, and let's, let's start with this right here. I know it's not coffee time, but how do you take your coffee? General, I used to drink it black. Now I put a little bit of cream in, man, but that's it. Yeah. That's it. I keep it, I keep it simple, man. You know, that's my new question. Since I took over the podcast, I'm like, I gotta know how people have their coffee. You know, it's a thing. We're a goddamn coffee company. We got to figure it out. Appreciate you bringing it. Cause I'll be brewing that tomorrow. I'm throwing out that other garbage that I get here locally. Yeah. So, yeah. Hell yeah, man. Dumpster bucks or whatever you got yeah, going on. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. So tell me your story. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up um, in the Northeast. I tell everybody I'm like a reformed Yankee, right? Because I love the South. I dig the South. I've been down in the South since high school. But up until high school, I was raised by my father up um, predominantly with my father. Um, And he was former military. He was an MP back in the early days of Vietnam, 60 to 64 then he became a canine handler. Then he went on to 20 years uh, in the sheriff's department. So I had that over my head growing up, right? Yeah. Growing up under, uh, with him and I was a little bit of a wild child. But, no. Yeah, just a little bit. I, he, uh, I like to tell the story. I, I, he arrested me once. You know, that's always my my classic go-to, you know. I got arrested in high school with my own father. And, what was the uh, offense? Well, I was carrying, I got in a fight in school and yeah. I had a knife on me, right? And some other dude brought, this is way pre-Columbine. Yeah. And this other kid brought a gun to school and they thought we oh. were like together, right? And I was a good kid. I had a good heart. Um, but I just seemed to get in a lot of trouble from like 10th grade on. I was always in and out. of. I, I was arrested several times. And luckily with my dad's influence, it kind of helped keep me, keep that off my record. So it kind of opened me up to joining the military afterwards. Yeah. Well, you developed that skill set in high school and then you just applied it <laughs> for uncle Sam. Criminality, man. I mean, that's how I kind of, I was just kind of like, uh, I was a slick kid, man, you know, like had a bunch of like run-ins with the law, but I was, thankfully I was really good at sports, man. Like I dug sports. I really, um, excelled in athletics, but I just wasn't interested in, um, in academics, man. Like, so I was in all these gifted programs when I was real young and I was such a, like ADD, I was like the original ADD kid. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, there was another guy just recently talking about ADD and I was like, you just need to channel that energy just because you're not interested in one thing, you got to focus on what you, apply that ADD to what you're interested in. Absolutely. Translated to me wanting to join the military, 
you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I even see it with my son. He's 13 now, but even when he was younger, you know, he'd get in trouble a little bit in class for talking or carrying on and whatnot. So we started working out together and it just took the edge off of him, you know, got him a little tired from a little PT. And then he was able to kind of mellow out throughout the day. Yeah, man. I, I mean, I, I, it was hard to find a sport that stuck because I wrestled. I did a couple years of basketball. Um, my little brother denies that I played fo- football for two years because he went on the college football. Right? So <laughs> yeah, I'm like yeah. that guy. I did like junior high, uh, junior high football. But then I, I started running in eighth grade. And it just stuck, you know, I was, I broke the five minute mile in eighth grade. And oh, shit. from there on, it was like, well, this is, it's a hard ass sport. It's an individual sport and it's kind of very mental. Mm-hmm. And I think those things paid off down the road because I was a, like, you know, I knew how to grind and, you know, kind of, it's just you and a bunch of other dudes and you have to like figure out a way mentally to keep pushing through the pain of, and I was a long distance runner. So it was hellacious sport, right? It's not like a sprint where it's like over in nine seconds. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was the distance? So I started as, you know, I did middle distance originally like eight, 800 meters, but I excelled at the, uh, the two mile was my best sport. Gotcha. My best, uh, Best discipline in running. And I did cross country every year. I did the mile as well. But yeah, I, could, I just wasn't quick enough to get, you know, there's dudes running low fours in high school now, you know. It's crazy. Freak kids. My old man, actually, um, he held a record. I grew up in Ohio and he held a record at like a foreign change, but for like 20 years at his high school. Not a huge high school, but a little suburb of Cleveland. Right. That's his claim to fame. So I'm, I'm naturally fast, although I don't like it. At one point during a pipeline for the PJ thing, they prescribe you a mile time. Now, keep in mind, I just told I was like 225. I was not a small dude. And for me, they gave me a 501 on a crisp morning in, uh, where's that, Texas. It was like the ground was frozen. It was kind of shitty. I remember running that thing. And if you didn't make it, it was, there was repercussions. You know, you had to make this time. It was a big deal. So I came across the line, lungs just burning like a motherfucker. And then the plaque just says, catch the fat kid. Cause I, all the young guys, cause I was older, you know, I'd already been in the army and whatnot. I'm like, come on, you little bitches, catch me. I'll tell you, man, that, that, that long distance running is, it's, it's something different. It's kind of like, I wouldn't say it's like wrestling. Like wrestling to me is one of like MMA is my favorite sport, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu MMA. That's like my passion for the last 20 years. I just really like, I like the challenge, the humility and all those things. Like, you know, one day you're the king, like in Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. One day you're like the best dude in the gym. The next day you're getting murked literally by everybody. So if you have an ego, you're not going to be doing BJJ for very long, right? It's the best, man. It's, but it's just the, the grind of that sport, the amount of just preparation to compete in anything. Um, it's like wrestling. Like they're, to me, some of the hardest sports you can freaking try to do. 100%. I mean, everybody, I think everybody in high school looks at the wrestlers and they're like, fuck dude, those dudes are grinding. You know, like a practice is rough. I, so I wrestled a little bit in high school. I also ran track. I was an 800 guy, which is a miserable fucking distance because it's not a sprint, you know, Kuwait. It's, it's just, in the, yeah, absolutely. But check this out. I got to do a seminar with Hoyce Gracie at Black Rifle in Salt Lake. Damn. And then had him in the, it was an aha moment. I'm like, I was the demo guy. You know, and he was like talking about different things. He's like, you get down here for the jujitsu and I grab you and I try to hit you. I'm like, fuck, it's Hoyce Gracie. Yeah, man. It was awesome. What a cool moment. Yeah, that's, that's where I, I, um, Later, later years, we'll go back. But um, 
Yeah, that's where I started. I started in capital jujitsu. Uh, I got back from Afghanistan in like early 2000s. And I was like, man, I still don't know about jujitsu, man. Yeah. Like I, I kept watching and I wanted to do it in the 90s. Uh, people, they were doing it in group. And I was like, man, I don't know. It seems kind of, kind of weird, dude. And so I tried it out. I was, um, I went into the gym, this guy, um, Jeremy, who's a, been a black belt for years now up there in uh, Capital Jiu-Jitsu, who's a great coach. He was only a purple belt at the time. He's like, hey, come roll with me. He's a school teacher. Yeah. Dude. And he like choked the shit out of me like 10 times. I was like, oh, fucking sign me up, bro. So then I just got, you know, smashed as a white belt for a while. Yeah. Figured things out. You yeah, know, absolutely. Loved it. loved it. That's the most dangerous guy in the gym is the white belt. Yeah. All strength, no technique. Well, especially you're one of those dudes, I'm sure. You grab onto somebody who's new to jujitsu and they might be a white belt. They're tense, but if they're a wrestler, you can feel it. The way they move, they understand their weight and balance and hip movement and everything else. And they're explosive. And you're like, oh shit, I gotta be careful with this guy. <laughs> All right. So high school criminal basically is what you're saying. You're it's a criminal. like, but you know, a respectful criminal. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was, you know, I was bad. I, luckily I, it would have taken one more my whole trajectory could have changed if I didn't have people looking out for me. My yeah. coaches looked out for me. That kept me in school because I had to have a certain GPA. Like if it wasn't for that, I have no idea. I probably would have been dead by 20. Yeah. I was just on a bad course. So my dad gave me three options. He's like, you can join the military like I did. Um, you can go to college, but I'm not paying for it. Or um, you can go get a job, figure that shit out. And I knew right off the bat, I, I was attracted. I started, I grew up with like, all the action movies back in the day, right? So, yeah, yeah. Like, I just watched Rambo the other night. One Fuck yeah. One of the newer ones, right? It's why I exist. Like, Rambo, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Schwarzenegger, you know, like, come on. I just, lo I just loved all, you know, I was like, well, I want to do that. So, my dumbass, my, I got fucked by a recruiter story. Next, <laughs> so, I said, all right. My dad said, you, need, you know, I said, I'm going to join the military. So, I went right down the MEPS, man. I signed up for six years like that. Yeah. I, my, I came back and I, you know, I was like, well, I did it. It was like a day after he gave me that speech. And he's like, well, you know, how long did you join for? Six years. He's like, <laughs> you know, I was like, he's like, I meant like maybe try it out, put your foot in the water, do maybe three years. Yeah. You know? And I, I didn't know much about the military. I didn't do any due diligence. I didn't have like my, my older brother was in the military. He's in still, he went back in at 50. Oh shit. He's a warrant officer now. He's a W2. And you know, so my uncle was in my great uncle, like I, so I had a bunch of people, but they, they weren't relatable to me. They were much older. So I just went down. I was like, I, I want to be an airborne ranger. Yeah. Like, okay. They stamped my paperwork. I saw airborne qualified. I was like, shit, I'm going to be airborne, man. <laughs> so I go to basic and, you know, I find out, you know, I'm a 68 x-ray, which I was working on Apaches. Right. As a, you know, armament and electrical repair for, you know, age 64 attack helicopters. And I was like, fuck, I didn't want to do that. that sounds boring, <laughs> man. So I, I went Fucking recruiters. Energy. Yeah. And I was like, this fucking recruiter, man, he told me I was going to be an airborne ranger, man. And I didn't even see other people. I didn't see any berets because I went to Fort Knox out of basic. And, you know, I get through there. That was a little bit of a wake up call. But then I started excelling and... I figured out how, how do I need to be successful to get onto the next thing? So I went through AIT and I was like, dude, I want to go to ranger school. And they're like, you're a fucking soft skilled MOS, dude. You're not mm -hmm. going to fucking ranger school because you can't go. And I was like, oh, that's pretty lame. It's not what the recruiters told me. So they're like, you can try out for SF though. 
And I was like, well, fuck yeah, I want to do that. So I was in Germany. I did a year in Korea, went to Germany. That's cool. Started rucking every day. Yeah. Like, a, like I did, it's a precautionary tale. Any young men trying to go <laughs> SF, don't rock with 110 pounds, 80 miles every day like I did. How's so your I was, shins? I was a glutton. Yeah, that's why I'm all crippled now. I'm like, you know, don't do that. You don't need to train with 110 pound rucksack, bro. Um, so, but I would do that like religiously. I just kept grinding. I was like trying to figure out like the, the two things that I knew, you had the ruck, you had to make sure your feet were squared away. And the second thing was like, don't quit. That was the predominant thing that, that was only advice because nobody I knew was SF. So I flew from Germany to, uh, to Bragg. And I think it was in the winter, man. It was 95. It's like back when the last hard course, man. Yeah. Sorry for all the email <laughs> from the other dudes. And yeah, man. It was a wake up call for me, but I just knew the whole time, um, all I have to do is not quit. And I was like, fuck, I can do that. Cause you'll have to kill me to put me the fuck out of here, dude. Like I've got, the, I've been ingrained with that mindset my whole life, which transitions even to today. Like I'm just, I'm good at like suffering. You know, I tell everyone I'm a professional sufferer. I guess that's going to be my new call sign, <laughs> but, um, the suck, yeah, embrace the suck, man. I went through then I, uh, the thing in the back of my head was like, I don't want to go back to my unit and be the guy with his tail between his legs. Like, Hey dude. Cause I talked, you know, I was like, I'm going to SF, you know, I told yeah. a couple of people, I'm like, fuck, I got to live up to this shit now. So I made it. And then I went to airborne school and went through the Q course. And, you know, I, I like to tell people I, I wanted to be an eight, uh, 18 Delta. Cause I was like, yeah, that sounds cool, man. I want to be the medic, man. It's, it's gotta be the smart guy. You save people's lives. But I was too stupid. So <laughs> I'm, I'm proof yeah. that that's not true. They were like, you're an 18 Bravo, bro. You can break rocks. Yeah. Break rocks and the little rocks and fucking learn how to shoot lots of different, uh, you know, small arms uh, all the way up to, uh, we're doing stingers and 106s and Carl Gustav. So we got the, you know, that was really cool because I was really in the guns. Even at a young age, I started shooting when I was maybe six or seven. Yeah. Perfect. But not properly. I learned all the wrong techniques from my dad, right? Revolver. Yep. <laughs> shooting trees. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> shooting like, rocks. Four feet. <laughs> <laughs> we used to shoot clay pigeons with 22s. And I remember we kind of rebuilt this little bolt action 22 deal. And I wanted these sights so bad. They were Williams peep sights. You ever seen those? Mm -hmm. Little adjustment on there and all that shit. And we got to the point where we'd, we'd break clay pigeons. And as they'd break, we just put the orange pieces back up till we're shooting like nothing. Shooting quarters and shit like that. That's pretty fun, dude. That's cool, man. Yeah, so I, I enjoyed all that, man. Like, and even when I made my friends that I still have now are literally from that time in the Q course, like ended up graduating, did a few deployments. And, you know, actually my second deployment was the first time I was like in a, in a combat setting, right? Like we got opened up on an ambush um, situation. I was driving and... I was just looking for more because during those first uh, couple deployments, I was the new guy, man. I went, I went, I went through selection as an E4. I was a corporal. And so when I got to my team, I just got my E5, which you don't see any E5s in SF, man. Yeah. It's like you autom almost automatically, you know, you're up for E6 shortly after, which I was. But we were doing foreign internal defense, counter poaching operations, demining. Mm -hmm. in predominantly North Africa, like Chad, Nigeria, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire. But I spent most of my time in Chad. 
And it was a fucking shithole, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like compared to Afghanistan and Iraq, all the other places I've been in the world, that place was just everything could kill you, man. Like diseases, dengue fever. We had guys getting dengue, malaria on my team. It's nasty. It's bad. I, my only, so I did, or I, I spent a tiny bit of time in uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, but we were out of Djibouti. Yep. And even Djibouti was like, yeah, it's not, it's not super cool. It's not like the fun deployments, right? Yeah. And, and you're not, it was, it was dangerous for a lot of reasons. Cause that was the time when Osama bin Laden, that was the first time I heard somebody utter his name. Right. I was in during uh, Dar es Salaam, um, when the embassy bomb bombings happened. And I think it was in like, I can't remember, maybe 98 ish. And we were the only military force in that area, like in the AO. And he was in Sudan, like next door at that time. And so it got really dangerous. Um, you know, even though we were doing like foreign internal defense, counter poaching, demining, all those types of operations, it, we had to go kind of like our posture had to be elevated while we we're there. And um, so it was kind of cool. Um, but I had, it was pre 9-11. So this is where everything kind of gets wonky, right? So I was getting, I already re-enlisted my uh, first time. And was at a point where I had to re-enlist again, what would put me well over 10. And I was like, I talked to my team sergeant. I was like, oh, what do you think I should do, man? And we had a heart to heart, you know, I said, I didn't come in here to like do like, and I know that's, you know, a predominant role of SF, especially at that, during that time in the yeah. late nineties, but I wanted to do more. And I thought about trying to go maybe try out for some other, the cool guys. Yeah. Um, but there was no guarantee and I didn't want to get stuck at that point. So I decided to go to PA school. So I got out, um, right around 2000 and I, um, started going to school, which was a total cultural shock, man. There was no transition, you know, that we can get into that when it comes to like mental health and things for dudes that are veterans that are transitioning from soldier life to civilian. And I was just like, I went to my, to group and they're like, here you go. You sure? They tried to like win me over. You sure you don't want to sign up, bro? We'll send you to free fall or some like, bullshit. Hey, the last guy said I was going to be an airborne ranger, man. Like, what are you going to promise me that I'm not going to get? So I was like, no, I'm going to get out, dude. And he, that was my transition. There was literally zero. It was like, here's your paperwork. That's and crazy. Like, fuck. And for what it's worth, it has improved a good amount. You know, yeah. even, even when I was leaving the army in five and, you know, I was moving over to do PJ stuff. There was still, you had to go through all like the, the meetings and the briefs and the, mostly it was the state highway patrol trying to, you know, recruit all the infantry dudes, but they do a decent job of it. And now just watching the evolution, I'm still in the guard, you know, so I still see some of this shit. Even my first trip in PJ land in 2012, I did a pre and post um, questionnaire on like mental health and shit. I'm like, I've never seen any of this. What the fuck is this? I'm sure you lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I gotta make sure. What, I, I don't. What should I be putting B? I, I don't drink at all, ever. <laughs> not, yeah, not a problem. No, not at all. Anywho. But yeah. So you went out, went to school. Then what happened? Yeah. So I did essentially like a year and a half, two years in community college, went through university that was really tough to get in. And I was shocked that they even accepted me because, you know, you heard my, my previous story. Yeah, yeah. Hey, not an academic genius, right? It still bored the shit out of me. But yeah. I was like, hey, if I'm going to be trying to be a PA, I really need to apply myself. So I kind of, I did, but I had one foot. I still wasn't fulfilled. I didn't have that purpose that I had previously. And I was like kind of regretting it. 
And then 9-11 happened, man. I was going in to take a biology test. It's like 8.30 in the morning, getting my hair cut. And I see the first plane burn into the fucking towers, man. And I instantly knew, man, I wasn't 100%, but I was like, that's not an accident, dude. And so I was listening to Howard Stern. I got in my car. I drove, still driving to school because I we people didn't know what was happening. I was like, oh, well, shit, it's unprecedented. Maybe it was like a fluke. Yep. And around, I was almost at school, which was down near Philadelphia. And I heard, you know, I was listening to Howard Stern. And he was watching out the window, commentating live. And I he's like, oh, my God, another fucking plane went in, man. And I was like, turned around, dude, went home. And it was either that day or the following day, I called my team sergeant back. I was like, hey, bro, I want to get back on the team. He's like, no, dude, listen, Grenada, Panama, the first Gulf War, these things, they don't last long. By the time you get in process, you're going to miss the, the, you know, you're going to miss, you know, the whole evolution. So I was like, all right, fuck. And so at that point, my buddy Ron Griffin, who I went through SF with, he had just gotten out and was doing some stuff for OGA. And he, he actually reached out and was like, Hey bro, you know, uh, would you be interested in trying out for the agency, man? I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> what do I got to do? Yeah. And he's like, well, there's the vetting process. You're going to have to go through this, you know, you're gonna have to do your SF 86, go through the clearance process and go through this vetting, shooting PT. And so I was like, fucking sign me up, bro. And that kind of, again, changed my trajectory from that point forward. So in 2003, during the invasion, like in the summer, it was like we were the first 10 dudes or so um, in country for uh, OGA as GRS guy. And it was exactly what I wanted to fucking do. You know, like there wasn't the bureaucratic red tape of what we had to do with SF. Mm -hmm. Like there was the ROEs were just, it was like, hey, man, you're going to operate in this envelope. Your f- job is to keep this these people alive. You're going to be providing high-risk protection in an austere environment. So I was like, okay. So that purpose is what drove me. Like putting someone else, I've continued to do that, like executive protection even later years. In the last five years of my career, I've been, I got back into it because I missed that. It sounds weird, but I felt like a Ronin when I got out. When I got out, um from SF when I was in college, I felt like that. And then again, when I was in defense contracting afterwards, I just felt like I, my purpose was not clear. It was like, am I doing this for money? Like I'm not, it's not like, I just didn't feel that purpose. Like money's great. Everyone loves money. You can do more shit. It's cool. But I wanted that like higher level, like put your life, you know, someone else's life, you're, you're putting your life uh, on the line to protect them. It's just, I just felt like that was my calling, you know? There's a nobility that comes from that type of work and, and mission and everything else. And even in, you know, contractor land, that, that is kind of the, the paradigm is you want to contribute. And sometimes because you're making a good paycheck, you're like, is it paycheck or is it contribution to country? At the end of the day, it's both. Finally, like you're making a decent paycheck. And make no mistake, the paycheck was nice at the time. Like, yeah, of course. Because like, I was like, well, I could go full-time, but that process, one, it's going to take longer. Two, it doesn't pay as good, but yeah. I can do the same shit being a contractor. And I have flexibility with my schedule. Where you live. If I want to work 10 months out of the year or full year or six months, I can make that decision. So I just felt the, the flexibility was totally worthwhile. Yeah. 
So I did that, you know, 2003 and our deployments were not like military deployments. So when I say, you know, I didn't, I don't actually remember how many deployments I have. I know I've counted 12, but you know, it's like there's some days, sometimes I've done six month deployment. Sometimes I've done 90 days, sometimes Mm -hmm. as as short as uh, 60. So it really depends, you know, but, but at that time I stayed for a couple months I went home for maybe a month and then I came back at the end of 03. And then I came back in 04. And 03 was very interesting in Iraq because it was the early days, man. Like we were running around in soft skin. I was on the road every single day mm-hmm. doing operations or FAMs. Out of what city? Um, we were originally, we took over Biop, okay. which was Baghdad International Airport. Um, we kind of like were housed there. But then we transitioned to Camp Slayer. So that was right across, like, uh, near Victory. Mm-hmm. And we kind of set that up. There was no one there, man. It was just like, you're free. What building do you want to make your compound? It Crazy. was early days, very wild west, man. And 03 was quiet, man. Like, not very many encounters, IEDs, shootouts. We were we cleared half of fucking Baghdad with, like, six dudes, which was insane. <laughs> Like we all had backgrounds that were completely fucking different. Yeah. So we had SEALs. We had predominantly SEALs and SF guys. But then we, you'd have some other guys with different backgrounds that had no CQB experience other than the, the schoolhouse. Right. And we're like four dudes or two dudes, you know, it was just very fluid. But I loved every bit of it, man. Um, all I remember is this is so hot, you know, it's like the hottest <laughs> summer I've ever been in because you're wearing all this kit and, you know, this is ridiculously hot. But going into 04, soon as I came in the spring, I think I came back in January. I just kind of came right back. I just would go home for a couple of weeks or a month. Then it became really like the encounters. Every day we'd go out, you know, in the spring, leading up to the spring of uh, 04, it just got the significantly worse. Like idea attempts were going up like, um, and we'd take a lot of rounds on vehicles. And thankfully at that point we started getting armor Yeah, and that saved, it saved me like several times. I mean, I got hit by a pretty significant ID on a Khadija expressway with my, uh, my buddy pulling security. And then the next time I went out a week later, that one was a pretty, like it, it killed our vehicle, you yeah. know? And, um, we, we were in a, it was the equivalent of a B7. So for those who don't know, armor piercing threats, but they set it up on a guardrail and we were going about 75 miles per hour when we got hit and we just went, whoop. and he, I just remember him looking over. He's a former, uh, Marsoc guy. Yeah. He was like, bah! I was like <laughs> that's not appropriate. For situation, mother. <laughs> but it's yeah. those moments in like a firefighter, some shit that are like the biggest takeaways. Yeah. I had a gun go down in that too, man. I came, I was at the range that morning. Didn't clean it. I only put like 200 rounds, but then I was like, Hey, you want to do this thing? Cool. All right. Well, everything was smooth. So we got out and there was a little bit of a, a, a shootout situation and he's just like, blah, blah, dropping, dropping mags. So I'm trying to do uh making a comm shot. And this dude is, I'm like, blah, 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 click. And he goes, bah, you know, I'm like the <laughs> asshole of the joke. And I had nightmares about that. It was not funny, but it was funny, you know? Yeah. Right. So I was like, it is a fucking tra- nightmare. I got a transition in but like 200 meters with a pistol. It was awesome. <laughs> so Fast forward that the next time I went out was another one. So it was just like the other dudes were just, there was a lot of 
Um, then I led into Fallujah. Um, during, during that time, I was still in country. And even the BW guys that were over there, I literally had drinks with those guys the night before they went out to do their thing. I said, what do you got? Where are you guys going? They're like, Fallujah. I'm like, you're all going to fucking die, man. And I was trying to be respect. I was like, this is bad, dude. Yeah. Like I said, man, things are heating up, man. Like, just please be careful. And watching that, that just pissed me the fuck off because of what happened to those dudes and getting strung up. And it was just, it hit home because I was watching it live. I just had beers with these dudes like 24 hours ago, you yeah. know? And anyway, from that point forward, did a couple, stayed in Iraq, the end of 04, Afghanistan, a couple short trips. And I, in 05, I went back to Afghanistan. And then 06, I spent most of my time in Israel. Um, okay. So that was, that was kind of like, thank you for your service deployment. Yeah. So it was great, you know. The, I wasn't getting blown up every day and it wasn't like Afghanistan or Iraq. But it was still kind of like when you're operating, you're operating. When you come home, you're in a pool, you know, yeah. and you can chill. And it was like, it was very weird. So, did you know a guy named Spicer in Iraq? No, I don't. Uh, I was I was doing ranger shit in 2004, and um, I was in the sniper section. And a buddy of mine had left snipers, and he was he went someplace. We thought he was trying out for A, B, or C, whatever. He shows up in a silver Merc, up armored, and he's like. What's up, Kevo? And he's in civilians, like blue jeans and a Glock. I'm like, oh, what's up with you, man? We were at a shark base, you know, and uh, in Ramadi. Yeah, he had shoes on, but, you know, he's working. And uh, he's like, you got any 7.62? I'm like, I got a bunch of match grade 7.62. And he gave me a bottle of, um, what's it called? Black velvet? Like yeah. shitty whiskey or whatever it was. But they had got the SRs and didn't have any ammo for them. Oh. Yeah. Back, back in the days when Andy, no, back in the day when the equipment was, uh, you know, not quite super hot, but yeah, it was yeah. like Mikhail's Navy, man. Mm -hmm. So we asked dudes, I, we started getting out gun. That was one of our problems. So we had, you know, we're, when you're in a protective environment, when you're doing like EP work, but you're in a high threat environment, it gets kind of murky. Like you're not supposed to carry certain things, yep. belt fed, things like, like military normally. And you're in a military environment, high threat environment, and you need to reach out. Even though when you do this stuff stateside, even like Secret Service, you know, if you're, you're not going to carry a belt fed like in D.C. or right. kill a bunch of innocents, right? So we, we needed guns. And we'll, it was like Mikhail's Navy, man. I had one, one of our dudes, man. We were like, hey, bro, we need some guns. He's like, how much do you need? And I was like, just get us some stuff, man. Like AKs would be really nice or maybe some belt feds. Or yep. This guy showed up in a a five ton truck. I still, <laughs> if I had those weapons, right, I would, should have brought them all back, man. I have that same regret so many times. Listening. Um, oh no, I, I may or may not know somebody. <laughs> we'll, we'll delete it. I may or may not know somebody who grabbed a foul and I love the foul. He's bowflaged it, put it in with the rest of the long guns, threw a scope in the bag. Dude. Well, that's when the Bravo stuff started to be handy, man. I was like, I'll go through these things. But I'm like, hey, you got to take back like at least three quarters of that, dude. We, what, what are we going to do? Like, Truckload of guns. I was like, what'd you do for this? He's like, it's like a couple cases of beer and a bottle of whiskey. Like, are you serious, man? <laughs> that's man, great. You are, you are, uh, you're a negotiator. You just got to weld all the barrels shut. And I think you could just send them back, yeah. right? I mean, he came back with RPGs. I was like, oh. Uh. <laughs> This is excessive. Um, I like the way you think, though, brother. Um, Especially as the Bravo. You're probably like, ah, oh, look at all the shit. 
Well, that's what led us in or led me into the next career because I thought wrongly, uh, so don't bet on me if I uh, make predictions, I suppose. But I thought this stuff was going to, every year guys were like, it's going to dry up, dude. You know, you're going to think, you know, what are you going to do next? And I was like, I don't know. All I do is gunsling, man. I don't know what I can, what, what am I capable of doing, you know? Yeah. Sure, but I'm not like, I don't have a degree. Yeah. And my degree is over here. And so my buddy, John Zinn, uh, he's a former SEAL Team 3 guy. He was my partner for a while. And we, I was partnered up with him through my buddy, Ron Griffin again, because he was like, hey, bro, when I got in country, we got to serve in, in Iraq together after the military. It was really cool. And he's like, you need to, you know, Chris is a good dude. He's a good dude. So we paired up and, and John was awesome, man. He was always getting me into trouble though. Cause sometimes he was a little aggressive, but, um, those are the best friends to have. Know, he's yeah. like, oh, what about that guy? I was like, he's an old man, dude. He's not looking at us. <laughs> so we partnered up and he got out. And one of the big problems that we had where we were getting blown up, um, a lot and shot up because of our profile. We're driving Suburbans, G500s, yeah. seven series BMWs. And it was such a high profile that every time we went down the street, they're like, they're important. Yeah. Blow them up. Well, and state didn't help with their profile and their VICs and everything horrible, else. Man. So we wanted to make indigenous vehicles. So he started making an armored vehicle company in California. And I initially invested in it. You know, my buddy that um, had one of my idea, uh, ID encounters with, he called me up. He's like, hey, bro, looking for investors. I was like, how much money, man? He's like, oh, it's like 10 grand. And I was like, that's a lot of money right now, but okay. He's <laughs> like, whatever, man. Because... My buddy Ron, again, he got involved with my buddy John. They all started this company called Indigen Armor, making low-profiled armored vehicles for steer environments. It yeah. blended, but had the stuff behind it. So anyway, we did that. I, did, I transitioned over as a project manager, and we ended up selling the company in four years to private equity um, with three knuckle draggers. You know, I got my business degree, mm -hmm. started working on Lean Six Sigma courses and all the stuff that's required for that industry. And it was crazy amount of work, man. And that's what kept my mind focused because I had transitioned to a bunch of other uh, SEALs and SF, you know, run company. And it would just made the transition a little bit easier because otherwise I don't think I would have been able to do it. Well, you're involved in the industry still and, you know, contributing and whatnot. So Yeah, and you're still part of the, you know, your, our customers were dudes like us. Mm -hmm. So it was really kind of nice, but it was very stressful because I just wanted to do the best I could. Yeah, absolutely. With what we had at the time, you know. What a power curve, though. I mean, going from, you know, GRS straight into that, you know, yeah. investing and running a business. It's and just a big dichotomy. School full time while working, you know, 16 hour days. It, yeah. was, it was not seven days a week, man. So... Anyway, kind of like that transition, my buddy John ended up dying. Uh, he went to Jordan on a work trip. He, it's a long story. I won't get into all the details, but he ended up passing away. At, you know, I got a call at three in the morning and we had worked together in Iraq. We worked together. He lived in my neighborhood, we lived maybe four doors down. Our yeah. CFO was in there. It was like the mob, man. We had <laughs> another general manager. We had three, four companies at the time when we sold mm -hmm. And, you know, I had to tell his wife, so I, you know, I got the call. I'm like, his wife was nine months pregnant with oh, his fuck. first boy and he already had two beautiful young daughters. So I had to go up there with my buddy Ron and my ex-wife and knock them the door at 6 a.m., man. And she was nine months pregnant and it just crushed me, dude. Like 
She fell to her knees right when she saw me. I didn't even have to say anything. The door opened, the little girls answered, and she's on, like, just came out of the shower with a towel on her head, and she looked at me, and she just screamed this this horrific wail that just, to this day, just wrecks me. So all this stuff happened, man. Like, the, the there were some legal issues with his uh, life insurance. We all had big life insurance yeah, policies. Yeah. The private equity group, there was some gray area, which I can't get into because I don't want to get sued. Yeah. I didn't agree. I waited eight months to figure this out. And during that eight month period, I was still working for the company because I had a lot of guys that cared about as 65 guys working for me. Mm-hmm. And during this time, I started drinking hard. Um, but I was working, trying to keep my com- the company going. Wasn't paying attention to the marriage as I probably should have. My buddy's dead. I had to pick his body up. There was just a series of unfortunate events. My, my wife left me. Uh, I had to resign my position because I didn't agree with how they treated his spouse. She ended up suing our company. I said, here's my, as soon as I, I got that phone call, I said, here you go. I'm done. Yeah. You're lucky. Uh, <laughs> I had some pretty horrific thoughts going through my brain. So that's when like, you know, go transitioning into where I'm at today. I took about six months off. I was in a this big house, all these things, and everybody looked at me from the outside that I was very successful, but I was f- totally falling apart, right? So I was drinking. I couldn't sleep. Um, that kind of triggered everything that I've dealt with for the last 12 years, I think. In, in high, Like, I didn't know this right away because I've been through so many different, what you call traumatic events, but I never, they didn't bother me, you know? So yeah, they can pile. This yeah. was the catalyst, right? Yeah. I wasn't expecting it. We weren't in Iraq. I was just a civilian. I was like, dude, you just want a work trip, man. What the fuck? Yeah. So I started taking Ambien. I, I, I was on sleeping meds for two years doing Roseanne bar tax at three in the morning that yeah. I don't remember. I was drinking probably a half to a fifth a night. And for that first six months, I was just a shit show. And I'm like, I have to get my shit together. I have to get another job, rebuild my what career. Year, what year are we talking here? So this was in 2010. He passed away. And then... In 11, it really came to a head. I got another job. Um, I, I was the general manager uh, uh, for uh, Jankel Armoring, which is a, fa- a fantastic armoring company in Greenville, South Carolina. So while I interviewed five times, I took sleeping pa- like uh, pain meds. I was taking a lot of like oxy and all the, every, anything I could get my hands on to calm my anxiety. That was the only reason I took it. You know, it might, I just couldn't, I was sweating all the time and just was a mess, man. Suicidal in 2011. That's when I planned to kill myself. The first time I attempted suicide was in 11 and my buddy Ron Griffin, it was the craziest thing, dude. Like, so all that my buddy died, my wife just divorced me on the anniversary, the first anniversary in 2011 of my buddy's death. It was literally to the day so she files the paperwork and just moved out. And I was like, whoa, I'm rock bottom, dude. Yeah. And so I put plastic up in my bathtub because I'm a conscientious suicidal guy. Because <laughs> I was like, well, I don't, wanna, I don't want anybody to like, I don't want to like have somebody clean my brain matter up. Like, that makes sense, right? <laughs> it's so weird. And I've it's weird. Like that. Is it weird that we laugh about it? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it is what it is, man. I mean, it's, a, you know, that's just how my brain worked. I was like, I waited till nobody would, whoever found me, I didn't want it to be his widow, yep. you know, cause fuck, well, that's a smart move that yeah. prevented me for a long time. So I just said, man, I can't do any more of this, dude. I got, you know, 
I just went through, just got my wife left, the buddy's dead. I quit my job. Um, all these other things happen. I can't sleep. I'm fucking anxious all the time. What the fuck's wrong with me? I couldn't figure it out. So I'm like, I'm going to fucking smoke myself. So I had my gun on my, uh, in my hand when my doorbell rang and I had plastic up and, you know, I didn't even care at that point. I think I was going to do it on the couch and my doorbell, I was drunk. I had a fifth, like drinking right out like Jim Morrison. Right. Yeah. And my doorbell rang like 10 in the morning, man. I was like, bing bong. And I'm like, uh, I was like, well, decisions. <laughs> God. You know, do I yeah. answer the door or I shoot myself? And I, I honestly didn't give a shit. And for some reason, I went to the door, man. My buddy Ron had gotten, uh, he was removed from the company. And that was another part. I was isolated. I had no friends. There were my buddies dead. He was one of my closest friends. My best friend, Ron, he went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. He started a nonprofit, um, running a nonprofit for, uh, it's called Shepherd Folds Ranch out in Oklahoma. He's been doing that for like the last 10, 12 years. So he, he I opened the door and my buddy's there with bags in hand. I'm like, what are you doing here, dude? So somebody had called him. My old CFO had reached out and said, hey, he's in a bad way, dude. I don't mm -hmm. think, I think he's going to check out. And, you know, that whole check your buddy thing, it's a little cliche, but this dude has been in my side for 12 fucking years, dude. I wore that dude out. And he came in, you know, he goes, this man, you look like shit. What are you doing? I was like, well, you don't want to know what I was going to do. <laughs> I was like, I'm drunk. You know, he's like, get dressed, man. You look like shit. We're going. I said, where are we going? He's like, we're going to the bar. <laughs> Cause he didn't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what dudes do. You know, hundred percent bad idea. You don't want to drink if you're fucking suicidal or depressed. Um, that's my PSA, but yeah. It allowed me enough time. He stayed with me for several days. I don't even remember. I don't know if it was one day or five days or a month. Like, I can't remember that whole time period of my life is a blur because I was on so many different things. And it was kind of the turning point at that time. I, I ended up landing the next job. And, but I was having outbursts at work. I'd get short fused at dudes. I'm like, and we had a high stress environment. We had to start this other company up. And I did that for about five years. I was still struggling the whole time. I had panic attacks at work. I was sweating all the time. I didn't want to go to my own meetings because I was like so anxious. Like I didn't want to be around people. So then I started isolating to a point where I was only comfortable being by myself. And even that got uncomfortable. Yeah. That's what got me. It was like, why am I sweating by myself? This makes no sense. There's no one here. You know, I've lived through this, so, so I'm familiar with it. But you get to that point where, like, you're sweating, you're a little shaky because you're dehydrated and you fucked your adrenals up, and all the time in combat and deployments, the way that we weren't necessarily designed to to operate. But you get, you don't want anybody to see it, and it's a little bit embarrassing too because you know you're in a certain state, and then you're using alcohol to sleep. That's what I did Not for for night. fucking ever. And then when I stopped, I was fucked up and then I wouldn't sleep for two or three days. And then I'd crash for like a five hour night. And I thought I was like the greatest thing ever to finally sleep where you throw pills in there. And yeah. then you got to have something like you wake up. Well, I can't drink because they'll smell me at the office or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I take something to get through to kind of mask all these symptoms just to get home and hit the bottle again. I get it. It's a bad, vicious cycle, dude. It's and fucking gnarly. Freak. So oh, I was still jacking steel like a motherfucker and drinking yeah, my face I was, off. I was doing, when I, when it started before that, that attempt, I was doing three a day workouts. Yeah. Like BJJ, uh, just 
functional fitness, I would, the thing that would redline me would be the Aerodyne bike. I still hate that thing. I don't even yeah. want it now because I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm a cripple, so I can't, <laughs> I can't really bike well. But I look at that thing, I'm like, oh, I hate you, dude. Yeah, fuck that. Because I just redline and then I, the, my mind would get quiet yeah. as soon as I started recovering and I got so fit. I was down to 170 pounds from like, you know, now I'm like, you know, usually around 210, you know, 220. Yeah. And that's, that's lean, dude. Yeah. It was, I always looked like an AIDS victim in hindsight. I didn't even realize it. So, but I went on to, um, from that point, I was pretty successful on the outside. I mean, I was running this company. I was trying to figure it out. I was masking everything as well as I could. I had to leave and change my suit several times throughout the week sometimes. I fucking pit stains, dude. Yeah. And I yeah. hate wearing suits, man. I'm a t-shirt guy. Yeah. I figure that out. But so... I went on to a third defense company, brought me to Atlanta. I was there for, as a turnaround expert um, for, was, we had a half a billion dollar global company, but mine was kind of a linchpin. It was a strategic acquisition. They wanted to uh, grow aggressively. Did that for two years. And then I got back into gunslinging for five, uh, the last five, um, doing high risk protection for celebrities and things like that. And I really enjoyed that, man. I thought I could do that well into my fifties because I stayed fit. Mm -hmm. And then in 19, everything kind of unfolded. That's when I was diagnosed with a very advanced form of uh, bone cancer called chondrosarcoma. And all my buddies had been getting sick from the early days in Iraq. And that's the only reason they misdiagnosed me originally. I just, I thought I had a sports injury in my hip. It didn't even hurt bad, but it went on off and on for like six months. I was like, eh, now it doesn't hurt. What the heck? Uh, so but you're doing jujitsu. So you're like, ah, it's just I something. I, yeah. I thought I tore a labrum or something in my hip, like some connective, you know, like a ligament or something. You don't want to tear your labia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not like what you do, man. <laughs> so I got an MRI and the dude called me in a half an hour. He's like, Hey bro, I've never seen shit like this. I've been doing this almost 25, 30 years. You need to be in the hospital. I was like, this sounds bad. <laughs> I'm really, I was 230, yeah. lifting every day. It's really strong. I felt great. Like cardio was up for that size. And because I'm usually a smaller, like, you know, dude, like 215, 210. Like I, I'm like right now, I'm like 200 for pre-surgery. Yeah. Going lean. So that kind of led, I was in the hospital for five days. They misdiagnosed me and said I had a bone infection. I got a second led into, hey, She's like, I don't think you have cancer, but let's do a, a bone graph. I'm going to send you to, that bone is compromised. I said, if you keep lifting like this, you would have lost your leg at the hip because your femoral head is about ready to snap off. The bone was, it was so compromised. Yeah. And I had no clue. I was leg pressing all this weight. Uh, thank God it didn't break off in the gym. It'd be so embarrassing. It would be super like, gnarly too. I guess you went too heavy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah nice job. Weak, weak jeans. Yeah, what is it? 500 pounds? I did like eight. Yeah, you repping that and you broke your leg, pussy. Yeah, that's awesome. No, no leg days for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Now I look like Foghorn Leghorn, right? So anyway, I went through that. I got a bone graft. Right after the bone graft, it turned into a week later, they're like, you have cancer. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a very advanced. It was a grade three contrasarcoma. So there's a high probability of a lot more surgeries. They had the, they did a radical resection. My right hip and femur took some glute and quad out. They, they took about half to three quarters of my femur with skill saws. They called it a brutal and radical surgery. I was like, oh, that sounds bad. He's yeah. like, it is. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's more like carpentry work at that point. Yeah, like dude, sawing that shit apart. using stuff out of your garage. <laughs> like, that sounds not... Sounds like a fun rehab. Yeah, you got a couple pipe fittings and uh, like a two-inch piece of steel. <laughs> 
So I bounced back, you know, from that point, but I was still suffering this whole time, man. Like, so at that point, like, well, I'll get through the the cancer turn, like bit of it and then kind of go back. But I had that, they took out my femur, learn how to walk again. And within like five, six months, I get a call from a dude that I work with who was from the UK-ish, mm-hmm. those guys. And he's like, hey, mate, <laughs> I got a gig for you. I was like, I'm a cripple. <laughs> I just got off a walker. I'm killing it because I'm month four yeah. or five. And I'm on a cane. He's like, no, it's an easy gig. So I ended up doing a gig that turned into, it was supposed to be a month for almost uh, six months. Oh, shit. And I, I, I think back now, I'm like, how the hell did I do that? It was in the mountains and it yep. was super... It was super aggressive, dude. I was riding four wheelers and also like I can't even do some of the stuff now. I just mentally just dug deep, man, bit on the mouthpiece. I was like, I gotta get back to work. Yeah. I think sometimes when you're when you're involved in it and your mind's engaged in whatever the skill or the mission or whatever that is, your your body keeps up. You have to make your body keep up in a way, despite the injury or the, you know, previous surgery. Yeah, I mean a hundred percent. And I think it what what that's what drove me. So when I got the cancer diagnosis in nineteen Early in 20, I'm still recovering. I'm watching the news unfold, right? I I got MRSA after my leg, uh, after my radical resection of my mm-hmm. femur. That was after my bone graft surgery. Fuck, man. Two weeks before that. So I hadn't walked in a while. So you get the pick line. Three, week, or three days. Mm-hmm. Stupid. Because all my MMA friends came down and like, hey, bro. My buddy Sean was there. He's a black belt uh, for SBG where I used to roll. And he's like... My buddy Wu and all these dudes were there and they're like, you got this, bro. And I'm like, I haven't walked in like two weeks, dude. And they just took like, to detach my leg. Yeah, <laughs> new bone. That's super fucking gnarly, so They gave me a list. They said OT and PT. Like, if you put your socks on, if you take, you know, if you take a shit, you put your socks on. If you can walk up these stairs. I'm like, I have not walked upstairs in three weeks, dude. My leg's atrophied and fucked. But I did it because I'm stupid. And... I highly regret that decision. <laughs> when I got home. You got MRSA too? So yes, you ended man. up with like vancomycin, pick line, all that shit. I went right back to the gym. Yeah. But with those types of surgeries, it's not uncommon to get MRSA. Um, and I was, thank God for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for that one because I've, a lot of my friends have had staff or MRSA yeah. or whatever. And I just had this little spot. My wife, uh, Jen, she works, she was at that time in the ER. Um, she's been a lifesaver. She's been very supportive of me because I've been a pain. Um, I just saw it on my, I had 110 staples on my second surgery and 12 on my first in the same spot. Fuck. And I saw this little, it was like the tip of a pencil and it was just red. And I'm like, that looks like my buddies looks like a zit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, it's right off the incision. So I told her, I said, Hey, I think this is might be MRSA or well, actually I said staff. Cause I was like, I hope it's not MRSA. They're both horrible. And she's like, yeah. So we circled it with a pen. I said, if this is bigger tomorrow, I'm going to the doctor. Same doctor that gave me the second opinion that saved my life. This awesome woman, shout out Dr. Raya Pudi. Um, So I went to her and she's like, yes, um, we're going to test you. but It'll take a few days. I'm putting on daptomycin and all these other antibiotics. So every day for three months, I let them stick me. In both arms and wear me out for three days. It was an hour to two hour infusion every single day. And I pull it out and I go to the gym. Oh (laughs) shit. I was like, you guys. And then COVID hit dude. Oh fuck. That's right. Right before I got out, it was like early 2020 March is when I had like, was 
I had like a week left of the MRSA stuff. Cause she's like, if it went one more day, they would have cut my leg off or had to reperform the whole surgery. Uh, because it was like a half a, half a, this is like a centimeter or two away from my prosthetic. And I was like, oh shit, I don't, I said, doc, if you do this over, just cut my leg off, dude, it ain't going to survive. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a shit show. So after all that was said and done, we knew it was a high chance that this stuff was come, coming, coming back. But I was like, man, my buddy Ron has been in my corner for 12 years. He's got four kids. He's running, he's executive director of Shepherd's Fold Ranch. He's got all these duties and responsibilities. At what point am I going to get my shit together and take accountability for my, my own mental health? Are you still drinking at this point? Yeah, hard. Yeah. Um, so I would go off the rails. Drinking is literally what I tell people. I'm like, I don't drink hard anymore. I don't, I'm not, I, I still drink, but I, I limit it to maybe, you know, most of the time I won't drink during the week anymore. Um, if I do, it's like one or two drinks tops because every, every time that I've had an incident, it's always with alcohol or yeah. some, some other drug, but yeah. usually alcohol for me, that was my worst. It just, your lows are so much more low. Even if you think you're good, if you have issues with TBIs and PTS, it can really <laughs> catch you on, off guard. Well, I, I, you know? again, in personal experience, I, I had this, my, my highs were higher, my lows were lower. I actually figured out how to talk the uh, TRICARE into getting a stellate ganglion block. Yeah, because, yep. yeah, man, because one day this dog, it's a longer story, but this dog went after my daughter and I was going to kick its fucking head off. You know, it's a Doverman. It was this dog place, whatever. She didn't get hurt, but I'm the guy that despite, you know, an IED, a rocket attack, a firefight, like I'm always even keel. All of a sudden I'm shaking. I'm like, what the fuck? And I had felt it more, you know, like my stress, like you said, the anxiety, like all that shit. And I was hitting the bottle hard, like real fucking hard. Same volume that you mentioned earlier. And I finally, I had enough fractures and little things in my upper body that I talked the guy into doing that's the late ganglion block. But like you said, you know, that kind of puts the limiters back on those highs and lows, you know, so you're more kind of right down the middle, but same thing. Booze for me, that's when the darkness creeps in. Yeah. You cannot drink if you're struggling, dude. Like it's, it's the go-to because it's a temporary reprieve for a split second. And that's what guys are like, Hey, if I get a second, that's cool, man. Like yep. I'm, you know, the voices go away. You know? You're just trying to shut this thing down, you know? The anxiety, which usually for me, there was three things. It would be anxiety 24-7. And I still struggle with it today, but nothing like, I mean, I couldn't do this podcast. I could not leave my house. Um, I go grocery shopping even to this day. And gym and grocery shopping is usually my go-tos. But now because of the, what we're getting into, the documentary, it forced me over the last eight months to just be uncomfortable as fuck. And that's what I tell dudes like is first you have to admit you have a problem, right? Second, if, if you admit you have a problem, you have to be willing to do something about it. Like you have to do something and that usually the best thing to do is explore your options as far as resource, whether that's some people hate the VA, totally understand, man. Um, everybody has different experiences, but there's a million resources out there for veterans, not even veterans, like first responders, doctors, civilians, doesn't matter. This doesn't have boundaries. It's just the frequency is much higher with like the military and why I'm passionate about it is because the community has been really good to me over the years. 
my identity still attached to it. I wanted to give back. So that first it prompted me to get in. So for the last two years, I've been in treatment. I never wanted to do meds. I was an anti-med guy. I'm a holistic mm. dude. You know, I like working out. I didn't want to change my personality. Anxiety makes me perform is what I always used to say, you know, because the stress makes me do because mm-hmm. I'm a doer and I'm, you know, I don't like to sitting around. I'm always like, still got ADD, I guess. Yeah. You and me both, dude. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you have to do those because I have so many people that have called me over the years um, that have been struggling that dudes that I used to work with, dudes that uh, um, civilians, man, I have like two or three civilian friends that are struggling and different scenarios, but they call me because I've been vocal about it. Same. Yep. You know, hundred percent. And I, and buddies reach out. I had a buddy reach out on uh, on a Sunday. He just goes, Hey man, how you doing? I'm like, I'm all right. He sent me the operator syndrome right up. Yeah. And he was like, hey, dude, you should read this. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking about you. Like, I'm struggling, so I want to reach out to you. He's the guy that uh, I told him about the like, ganglion block. And, of course, he lives in Vegas, so he, like, found some place that does Tom it on a Thursday. Satterley. Tom Satterley. Yeah. We talked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About I've talked to Tom six before. Six months ago. Yeah. He connected me with the same group, which does a lot for the community. Yep. And they offered it to me to pay for it. Fly me to Chicago. Oh shit! Put me up. Very I cool. Do it. Started. I did my psyche val. Yeah. All that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, we all do. It's sure. all right. But um, I, because I knew. So last summer, this stuff progressed to my lungs, right? So we couldn't formally give me the stage four diagnosis last summer, but I knew I was like, well, my lungs were clear two years ago when I got my leg done. Right. Now it's in my lungs. You have all these suspicious nodules. That's the worst term. I hate the term because a lot of people do get nodules, you know, especially being overseas. But I knew right then and there, they started growing. They started moving from my right lung to my left lung. So I have a bunch. And we tried to do a biopsy this February and they missed. So you have one job, brother. Yeah, dude. (laughs) I was on the table. I did my thing and you missed the freaking tumor, man. They missed. And ironically, I have the same surgeon where uh, in 10 days, I'm going going to get my lower right lobe removed. Um, by the same dude. By the same dude. How do you feel about that, Chris? Well, I thought maybe I should go to a different mechanic. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like if your car, the dude's like, hey, bro, I don't know what's wrong with it. I mean, I tried to fix the engine. His car still doesn't work. Yeah, right. A smart person would probably go to another mechanic. But- yeah, but you know. I just figured that one was, it was a robotically, a, it was like a bronchoscopy with ultrasound and x-ray guided. There was, uh, dude, it looked like I got, dude, if I ever do Joe Rogan, bro, yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to tell this story because I thought I got abducted by aliens. <laughs> First of all, when I was on the table, I started asking smart questions for due diligence. Yep. I'm already, I got IVs in. I'm like five minutes, my wife's there. I'm like, hey, so how many of these have, have has, the hospital done, like in the state of Georgia, they're like, oh, we've done a lot. I'm like, well, how many is a lot? They're like, 32. (laughs) We've done six. I was like, bro. (laughs) That's not a lot. 32 is not a lot of anything. (laughs) So I'm 33. And you know what I didn't ask? So a week later, he calls me. He's like, hey, bro, I'm so sorry. I missed, we we didn't get a good sample. Uh, We can do it again. Or, and I was coughing up blood. They put a mask on me. That's a whole other topic. But, or, you know, we can just remove this thing. I was like, well, let's do that, dude. Because since that surgery in February, this thing has grown, you know, it's big now. Yeah. 
it's going to start, you know, if I, it, it, they gave me the options. You can either do this surgery in 10 days or you can die. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, uh, I think this one out, man. Let's go surgery. So I was like, I feel really good right now, but I think this will be my last surgery. I don't know that I'll do many more. Um, I told my wife I'll do this one for the family, but you know, I, I have to do CTs every three months for the mm-hmm. rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And these other ones are just sitting there waiting, right? They're right now they're, they're not growing exponentially like this thing. It's got to go. So I don't have a choice, but I'm not excited to have, um, you know, I'm like, you're and one dude, just make this one count. What, you know? what happened? Because you obviously you're, you're a driven human. Okay. And I, it resonates with me. I'm the same. Even when I was, you know, beating myself up and crushing myself with booze and everything else, still PT and like crazy. But where did the, where did it go from suicidal gun, the plastics up to the resiliency of doing the surgery to survive? Well, that's, that's the funny thing. So it led to January of this year. I've been in therapy. I got medicated. I'm on like several meds, mm-hmm. um, for depression, anxiety. Plus I have medical stuff coming on. So it's not the time for me, um, to, to get off today. Um, my, my plan is in, in, uh, next year I want to be off this all off all meds and, uh, if possible. And anyway, like in January this year, I started to think just about that. Why have I not done this yet? I've had a gun in my mouth so many times, like thousands of times I've probably had a gun in my mouth, like hundred times a year, you know? And, you know, some of these came out of nowhere to a point where I, I was like, man, I almost messed up, you know, in the morning after, and it was just like the emotion. I was so emotional and all this stuff that I just couldn't explain. So when I went into therapy two years ago, I thought just about that. Why, why am I still here? And there's a lot of times where I was like, I definitely do not want to be here. The only way out is the, you know, taking my own life. Yep. So I reached out to Dan, Daniel Beatty. Like he's my uh, producer for the documentary. I started, like I said, here's what I want to do. I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I have this particular background. I'm used to suffering. I, I suffered my whole life, like with sports. I always redline and try to do, you know, take my body to the the limits and mentally, like I got a really strong mind and it may, my buddy Ron is probably why I'm here predominantly, but my willpower is so strong. I was like, I'm eventually going to lose. So that's what led me to therapy, but it also led me to the documentary because I'm like 22 veterans a day, roughly commit suicide. And if you look at the statistics, I started seeing all this bad stuff going on TV. The last three years has been a horror show for me, for this country. I'm not proud of what I see. People are very, you know, divided. Mm-hmm. And I've been suffering so long and I started having all my friends call me and I had a lot of friends that have committed suicide. And I was like, I want to do something about it, man. This is going to be my focus because if I can't figure this shit out, how is some other dude that might not be equipped mentally that have the willpower or the physical abilities. It's more so on the mental aspect. How are these dudes going to beat this? And the answer is a lot of them aren't. No. And it's sometimes eating it. They're dying. Yeah. And so it's in my experience and I've had too many. It is the last fucking dude. If you gave me a list of 10, he'd be the last guy that I picked. That's the guy that goes. And there was a guy from the GRS community who was also a PJ. And 
like you said, you know, that, um, that solitude, like you seek that solitude. Well, both of those career fields, I call it my interrupted life, you know, when I deploy back and forth, back and forth constantly, but you're also, you're not really accountable to anybody during that time. And you can slip into that bottle and you can go super fucking deep. And as long as you can brush it off, show up for work and get through that, whether it's a 60 or a 90 or you're showing up for a drill or whatever fuck, you know, military shit you got to do. But a buddy of mine, um, he did just that. He showed up and he was the fucking smiling, happy dude. That's how you I know. am. I'm a jokester. Dude. Yeah, <laughs> all the time. Like, yeah, I can't act like that because it's a serious topic. I don't want to like, you know, but I joke around. Even when I'm suffering like cancer, I make all these cancer jokes, man, because I'm like, oh, now I'm part of the team. Right. So I go into the <laughs> clinic and I'm like, hey, what's up? Stage four, what's going on? You but know, it's culturally, like, it's, that's how we've like, grown up. What is wrong with this guy? Like I come into the tank top <laughs> out of the room and they're like, you're stage like almost four, yeah, five. I'm like I'm stage five, dude. But, <laughs> but it's it's the culture, man. You know, it's it's kind of where we have collectively grown up is in the face of you know uncomfortable situations. Humor, you know, humor goes to it. All right, I'm sorry. Continue. So yeah, so that was what the challenge was. I finally got help two years ago. And then I'm like, how are other people figuring this out? Because I haven't figured it out. And I love psychology. I love thinking. Like I can get myself, I can use holistic approaches. I've tried literally everything. Goat yoga. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> where perfect. does the shit go? Anyways. Yeah. So I reached out, I started looking, I was like, I want to, I want to do a documentary that, and I'm the anti book guy in the community, the anti, I've been off the radar. I didn't even, I have LinkedIn and I have now Instagram because of what we're doing. And I was just private with my friends to keep up. I never had been on Facebook still to this day. I don't even know what Facebook looks like. So I'm like that guy. Yeah, me too. And so now I'm like thrusting myself. I ended up getting in contact with Daniel and I was like, hey, bro, I want to make a documentary to raise awareness for the high prevalence of veteran suicide in the community. It's 22 a day. And I want to take my story and other veteran stories, but predominantly me because I have a story to tell about it from my perspective Mm -hmm. and I know myself well and I haven't been able to figure it out. So I want people that are struggling. It's like, Oh, this cool guy, you know, I'm still fit. That's why I wanted to sneak this in before my surgery, before I I, I get all like, you know, shrink up again. But you know, what can I do for the community? Well, if I start talking about it, I can destigmatize the topic and I think that's big because if you look at the terminal list, I've been watching that. I love Chris Pratt, man. I'm not a yeah, fan. Yeah. I actually was enjoying that, watching that the other day. I don't watch a lot of uh, war stuff. But everything you see on TV is like, he had a TBI, I think. Um, I watched a couple episodes. But everything in the in media, it, it, it gives such a negative connotation to dudes with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. It's always the guy that shoots someplace up or... It's not the case, man. Like not, not, not for me. I only wanted to hurt myself. I never, you know, I do have a short temper. Um, I have had problems with that in the past, but predominantly I wanted to hurt myself. Right. Nobody else. I didn't even want somebody to like, you know, so I'm like seeing all this stuff and I wanted to, to raise awareness, destigmatize it, but also provide some true resources. Cause I didn't, I never even looked the ironic, the irony is now I'm becoming more, not a subject matter expert. I'm not a therapist. Don't claim to be one. But if I looked around, 
you know, SGB, like the spinal ganglion block. I just learned about that this year and got mm-hmm. offered that. I almost cried, dude, like for real. Cause I said, dude, if I had this 10 years ago, it's fight or flight's gone. Then I can, it's, these are all different tools and there's not a one size fits all for all dudes. But I think the two things that destigmatize it that for the audience is like, first of all, if anybody's suffering is listening to this, I really like the term, you know, I think uh, Mark Spitzer, who's a, uh, uh, SAS, former SAS guy, sniper. I just been chatting with him. We we're supposed to do a podcast together. I said, I started reading his book that he gave me. Um, I think it's Outdance the Devil. I hope I get it right. But, you know, a lot of this stuff, they're using PTS, uh, PT, PTSI now, post-traumatic stress injury. Mm-hmm. So if dudes that are listening to this, is like, there is no difference between breaking your leg. If you break your leg, you're going to go to a doctor, right? Because you're, 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 if you don't set that bone, it's not going to heal correctly and you're going to be a cripple. Like, it's stupid. Same thing with TBI and PTS. You can put somebody, their head in, you know, an MRI or some kind of imaging, a brain scan, and there's physical damage to your brain. And that should help people understand like, dude, there's no difference. There's no shame going to the doctor. If you have a TBI and you are having memory loss issues because you got blown up, or you have anger issues because PTS and TBI overlap. So that was one thing, like, I like the PTS, uh, um, post-traumatic stress injury. I think it's a more appropriate term, honestly. And I'm not, you know, you can wordsmith things and make it touchy-feely, but I honestly feel like that would be a, a starting point. Well, I think disorder is, you know, it's disorder is offensive, man. You know, it's got a negative connotation yeah, to I it. I want to be like the fuck that I've, dude. I've been saying post-traumatic stress, that's it, for years. Because right. I don't fucking like it. You know, I don't like, I don't like that disorder portion. Um, I, I think people just need to talk, like open your fucking mouth if you need help, you know? Yeah. There's tons of resources, man. Like I went to Warrior's Heart with Tom Spooner, who's a former CAG guy. Um, I, they spent 12 hours with me. They got 600 acre ranch in Bandera, Texas. Just one of many places you can go to. They got 150 people on staff, 600 acres beautiful freaking facility. They don't take your shoelaces. They don't take your belts. They tro- do drug and alcohol treatment in addition to therapy. I was like, why didn't I know about this place? It's all yeah. paid for. If you're a veteran, you can go like reach out to those dudes. That's one place. There's multitude. If you're in the faith, faith-based places all over the place. Shepherds, uh, shepherds men here in Georgia, they do TBI stuff. Yeah. Like if you got a TBI, they do crazy stuff here. So there's all these resources, man, and they're all different tools. It's very complex, but you got to start one, admit you have a problem Two, uh, be willing to do something about it. Three, look for resources and start talking to people. And don't be ashamed to, you know, Hey dude, you know, my brain's fucked. You know, um, if you don't like your situation that you're in and how it fucks up your relationships, your jobs, career, there's just a lot of things that, I mean, why wouldn't you do something? And I'm also trying to get guys to reframe the brain because a lot of my friends, we're growing up in this atmosphere. If you're a soldier, thinking like a civilian will get you killed. Mm -hmm. If you start getting all emotional and talking about your feelings, right? And that's part of the issue. And you transition to civilian life, there's a struggle because the things that kept you alive in the the military will get you killed as a civilian. And when you're a civilian, if you join the military and you don't have any training, things that kept you alive as a civilian will get you killed in the military. Yeah. So you got to realize there's, there's a transitional, you know, when you get out, talk to this guy, Levi, who was a former SF dude, this in Texas. I don't know him personally, but he was, 
kind enough to take calls. Eventually, I'd like to interview the dude, sole survivor of an IED attempt. And I said, dude, how did you do it? You got burned over like, I don't know what it was, broke almost every bone in his body. His whole team was killed. One dude saved him. And uh, I think it was in Bagram, maybe. I might be getting that wrong, but I think it was in Afghanistan. And he's like, bro, when you transition, it's helpful for dudes. You're climbing a ladder. So, so you get out and you're a master sergeant. You're at the top of the rung, dude, you know, or if you're an officer, you know, whatever. But you're at the top of your career after 20 years or 25 years, 30 years, whatever you've done, you're the top rung. So when you get out of the military, most people are mentally are thinking, dude, I got to, this is his analogy, by the way. I'm not taking credit for this because I thought it was really wise. But he's like, when you get out, you, you're not going to, most guys think they're going to continue the, the next rung and the next rung from where they were. I'm like, no. He goes, dude, you just need to find another fucking ladder. Mm-hmm. Get on another, find a ladder. I don't care if it's the bottom rung, start climbing. You'll get yep. there, dude. You know, but don't, you got to mentally be equipped. It's hard too, you know, and, and think about it. You know, when you're on a team, you know, when you were, you were on an ODA or, or an SF or whatever, you leave and you hang it up. And then one of my best friends, Mike, he hung it up again. So when he left OGA, he was feeling a certain way. And I was like, what's up, man? He was hanging it up again. He had decided like, I'm done. I'm, you know, I've got what I need. want to spend time with my grandbabies, so on and so forth. But psychologically, you've now hung up that gun. The only thing you've known for 20, 25 years, you know, and you've started a transition, whether that transition is into civilian life or retirement or whatever that is, it's fucking hard because you're losing your tribe. You're losing your community. You're losing, you know, the camaraderie and the banter and shit from the team room and like all that stuff goes away. And then you're telling dick jokes and baby <laughs> jokes and shit at the grocery store. And now you're the inappropriate guy. And, you know, cause you're not around your people in a way. So it, it's a super pivotal time. And then at least in my experience, when I've walked away from certain positions, um, you know, climbing in that bottle is that's the easy button. And it shuts everything off and it makes everything fucking worse in the long run. Right. And it's, it's rough, dude. It's really rough. And that's when guys get fall into the darkness. And I also like to tell dudes too, I'm like, if you suffer from that stigma, right? Cause I've had a couple guys this year. I just found out one of my buddies attempted suicide last year, which I did not know. I was totally shocked. And I also didn't know he was in therapy for almost five years. He's squared away, married kids, good job law enforcement now after crazy career. Um, and I was just shocked. I was like, bro, why didn't you call me, dude? And, you know, we don't stay in touch. There's certain dudes, like, I talk to my buddy Ron literally every day. Like, we're two old men. Hey, what's, what's up, bro? <laughs> and he's just been like, he's that guy. I mean, I'm like, I don't know, 26 years, I'm old as hell now. So I never thought I'd live to be this long, but that's part of the problem. You know, I didn't know what to do at 25. I thought I'd be dead. Yeah. And then I just kept living and I'm like, what do I do now? Yeah. And even in my mind, my, my mindset now people, I have to kind of like, you know, I've got like a, maybe a 9% survival rate for the next, you know, look statistically when you're stage four with chondrosarcoma, there's no treatment other than <laughs> surgery. Like chemo doesn't work. Radiation doesn't work. So I have a very low life expectancy at this point. And I don't know if it's like a year five or I don't think I'll ever make 10 years. I'm going to damn try well, man. Cause I'm a, I'm a stubborn motherfucker, but it's a mind fuck when two years ago I was thinking about, well, even this year I had a couple slips. I've been, this is the best I've ever felt uh, mentally because I'm in therapy every week. I'm on taking things religiously and I'm listening and doing the things 
I'm putting in the work. So that's where I'm going with this is like, if you're suffering, you got to put the work in instead of saying, Hey man, I'm a pussy for talking about my feelings. Like, no, you're not dude. The hardest thing you can do is what I keep telling people, man. Even my buddy is like, ah, I didn't want to do therapy, man. Last year I was like, I don't want to talk about this to a stranger. And I'm like, the hardest thing you can do, like the documentary was the, literally the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, because it forced me like to sit down behind the camera and talk and open up about some things that other dudes probably are like, that's it. You know, I mean, I have a lot of shit going on, obviously, you know, with yeah. the answer and PTS and the career and you know, whatever, but it's just an interesting, like going from two years ago to now is very interesting of like, you know, one day you want to kill yourself the next day. You're like, I'm, you're struggling and clawing. Like I'm doing surgeries and all this crazy things to preserve my life. So I was like, that's, that's not a good mindset. So I tell people, I'm like, you need to go battle your shit head on. If you don't like where you're at, do something about it. Make it a fight. If you're a warrior, because I consider myself, I have a warrior mindset. I got a super strong freaking will. I'll challenge anybody on it, you know? Like maybe not physically. I can't outrun anybody now, you know? <laughs> I can't out. I'm like, oh, I can't even put my sock on my right foot. But if you go head on at it, make it a fight. It's the hardest fight that I've ever had. I'd rather get beat up by 50 dudes in a back alley with pipes, like pounding on me until I'm almost dead. than do what I just did this year and last year by grinding every day and making it a fight. And it's like, I'm not going to lose to myself. That's freaking ridiculous. Why am I not going to be successful? Why am I not going to get out and be uncomfortable? The more uncomfortable I am, the more I've grown. So I tell people, I'm like, you need to struggle you're going to have to suffer a little bit to reap that benefit. You just got to be willing to suffer a little bit more. You're already suffering. You're more suffering than the mental health issues. Like in my opinion, that's the worst. Nothing gives you fulfillment. You're, you're, you're dead inside. You could have beautiful daughters and sons that rely on you for life and you feel nothing. You hit the lottery, nothing, dude. It's just the, you know, it's weird. It is weird. And it's sad too, because guys silently suffer with that thing, you know, until they decide to punch out. But just like anything else, like I'm a physically fit dude. I'm in the gym every day. Even if it's not going to be a good day, I'm in there. But it took me a long time to change that paradigm and work my mind like a muscle. And I'm not great at it. And I skip days and I skip fucking therapy. Days. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really want to do that. My guns aren't, my guns aren't looking super vascular. So we'll just hit those again. But you got, you got to do the work. You got to put in, you know, that, that exercise to develop that mental IQ, you know, that mental toughness, if you will. And toughness is the wrong word though. I mean, we're all mentally tough, but it's turning and looking in the mirror and going, I'm fucked up. Let me figure out how to do this. And what I've found is when I say shit out loud, it helps a lot. And people know exactly where you're at. And all of a sudden you're relating. A guy, uh, I met a buddy of mine, Mike, different Mike, uh, about a year ago. And the first time I met him, I was in the parking lot at Black Rifle. Great place to transition. Not like that. Transition, you know, from the military or military service and, you know, learn these civilian things and project management and things like that. But he looked at me and he was like, oh, you, you want to grab some lunch? And I'm like, nah, I'm good. He's like, oh, are you one of those fasting dudes? I was like, yeah, kind of. He's like, and he's asking me about it. And I go, I, I eat dinner and second dinner. That's it. 
And then he's like, what the fuck? I go, I exude an immense amount of control over my diet and exercise because the rest of my life is completely out of control and I can't control those things. And it's, it's really a problem. He was like, oh, you're mentally fucked up just like me. <laughs> so now we can talk about those things, yeah. you know, just saying it out loud and saying, hey, I'm struggling or I have a problem. That buddy that sent me that paper, that white paper on operator syndrome, same type of dude, you know, Jeremy, I'll call him up. Hey, dude, what's going on with you? Because it's uh, someday I want to be somebody's Ron. Right. I want to feel that energy in the universe or whatever the fuck. The most, it's stressful because I'm like, bro, first of all, like I'm not a counselor and I get calls like I'm like, I may or may not have taken something. Uh, yeah. you, know, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, you call me and I'm trying to say, like, this is a fucked up situation. So, but it's so fulfilling, man. Like I get calls all the time. I, I've had two, I think last week. Um, yeah, two last week and one the week before. And I'm like, bro, first of all, I'm not a counselor, but you want to, you want to get, you want to get better. Number one, and you want to do something about it. You know, are you willing to actually commit to something? Are you yeah. just here to, the, you know, and that's fine too. You know, I'll, I'll listen to you if it's going to help for sure, but you need to fix this after today. There's got to be some steps that you're like willing to take. You know what I mean? Well, and I don't, I don't like when guys are afraid of like taking meds or whatnot. I had a buddy call me up and he goes, dude, I was trying not to take meds, but fuck, they put me on them. They said, like, give it a year, see if you can do some counseling in that. And then if you want to wean off or whatever, he goes, I feel fucking great. My mind is a little calmer. I'm able to focus a little bit more. Those aren't as low. The highs aren't as crazy. So when I tell people on the meds, I was like, I went 12 years, dude. I would go to my primary care. I didn't want to lose my clearance. I didn't want to lose my job, yep. my livelihood. Yep. So I never said anything because I'm like, I, w I went in there. I was like crying to my my primary care. I was like, I'm so fucked, dude. Yep. And he's like, what is wrong with this guy? Like, he doesn't see this shit. He's not a psychiatrist, psychiatrist. but I was like, I need something to sleep, dude. Um, I'm not sleeping. I fucking have anxiety. I didn't tell him I was suicidal because I was like, I didn't want to get Baker acted. Yeah. It was like, he's like, didn't even ask me because he's not that kind of professional. And I, I he's like, I'm going to give you some like antidepressants. I'm like, no. And yep. he's like, well, it'll might fuck your dick up. And I was like, well, I'm not taking that. For like, sure, no. It's suicidal. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you trying to get me to kill myself? So yeah. I didn't, but then there's all these other different, there's alternatives. If you tell people what your concerns are, like I did two years ago, I said, fine, I'll do it. Because my the other option is I'm going to end up doing this one of these times. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Yep. You know, I was so worried that I wasn't going to make it. Even when we started the documentary in January, I said, bro, I really want to do this thing, but if I end up, I don't know that I'm going to make it this year. Um, not because of the cancer, but because of myself. And that was our first interview. I said, I, if I don't make it, I want you to, <laughs> sounds fucked up because I was joking, I was laughing, but I was completely serious. I said, if I end up fucking off of myself, bro, like I want you to finish this thing and exploit the shit out of me as a, you know, as a cautionary tale for dudes watching because you know, that would be gold <laughs> Yeah, as fucked up as that sound. But that's where my head was in January when we started. And since then I've been forced in all these uncomfortable positions and it's progressively gotten better and better through that process. And yeah, I've helped other people because I said, dude, he goes, what do you want to do for this? Like, what's, what's success? I said, I don't know, bro. I'm like, I haven't worked in a year and a half because I've got, I'm dealing with cancer and going to the doctor every day. I just went to the, have an echo yesterday and got injected with a bunch of weird stuff. And, you know, I just think it's, uh, 
I, if we can help save one life, that's yeah. my fucking goal. Okay. Yeah. Like if I spend a bunch of money and we save one life, what's a fucking human life worth? A hundred grand or 200 grand. That's like a drop in the bucket, dude. And so we self-funded this documentary. Uh, we're calling brothers keeper documentary for the last eight months, um, which hasn't been easy. Like my producer hasn't got paid a dime. Like he's been doing all this. Like we went to Nashville four times, Texas. We went to Savannah. We've been all over jet setting, uh, Oklahoma to my buddy, which was very difficult. <laughs> that was a bad interview for me, mm-hmm. but I was like, you know, Hey dude, now we got to do some fundraising. So we're kind of in that phase. Like we need to put together a, um, you know, the post work, it gets very expensive for these types of things. And I, all I want to do is a good job because the, the more people that kind of follow this, um, journey, I want to make it into inspire people, not be like, I tell people, I'm like, who wants to watch a documentary on veteran suicide on a Friday night with the wife? Hey, get some popcorn. Yeah. Let's watch this shit. I know this dude. Oh, he's fucked up. So I want to make it like, like even now, like I'm going to have surgery in 10 days. They're going to take my fucking lower lobe or my right lung out. And I don't know how that's going to be because I've had other, you know, I had the biopsy, but I've never had this done. I know it's going to be a kick in the dick. I told him, uh, Daniel, to like stick a camera in my face, dude. I want to show you how I can smile with the fucking, like I might have a bloody smile. I don't know. But as long as I don't get COVID during that first week, I'll be good. Um, I want to do show people physically, and that could be the cancer crowd. Hey, dude, this is what you physically can do through adversity. I don't have a femur. I don't have right hip, glute, quad. Um, uh, lower right lobe, lobe of my lung. I'm old, you know, I'm 49 now, I'm not young, <laughs> but I want to do like, I want to show people physically what I can do in the next six months. And that can inspire people on a different course, but it's all mental toughness. And then through the documentary, I want to show guys like, yeah, I've been in a fucked up situation mentally. I've been very successful on the outside, but um, I want to inspire people Look at all the successes that have happened since we started this. You know, dudes that have come out the other side and figured shit out. What What did you do? Like, how did you get through this dark time? And how are, how are you now not fighting those demons like you were a year ago? Right. Like, get after it, man. We hear the definition of what this podcast is. So when Evan brought me on, I was like, you don't need me. I'm just another dumbass you know you got cooler dudes but i'm in this stable of humans and he said what do you want to do and i said i I want a campus that teaches people how to deal with this shit and by campus i mean like slate ganglion blocks and float tanks and meditation and like all the holistic shit but now there's all the research and the white papers and whatnot on like psilocybin and ketamine like all yeah all that fucking shit so i find i use this platform now to talk about this shit so when i get introduced to you i'm like yeah i want to talk about that because, you know, we, we reach, you know, 30,000, 60,000, whoever hears it, if you can save one, then you've done the right thing. You know, you've put the message out here and we inspire, inform and entertain. That's kind of the mission statement for the podcast. And I think that you're doing all of that. Plus you're yeah. funny motherfucker. So that helps. Yeah. Well, this time, <laughs> like, I just feel like this platform has been more like, I, I, I've done these other, uh, I started, I've never done one before. And I almost, like I told you, I almost had a freaking panic. Well, I did have a panic attack on my first two and it didn't matter if there's one person or 10 people. I yeah. was like, I can't do this, man. I'm like I am. And I grinded through that thing, man. I was like, 
You know how you can start the world closes in on Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everyone gets real far away. And I'm like, you ever get that one? Hey, Marcus. Marcus <laughs> Luttrell, my second podcast. I was like, oh, shit. Why don't I just jump into Joe Rogan on this one, right? <laughs> so it's progressively gotten better, but that's that's the analogy to the mental health. If you put the work in, dude, it gets progressively easy. Now I'm like, dude, I got to let people know my personality because I don't, you know, with the cancer stuff and PTS, like I joke about both. Like they're super serious topics, right? And I don't want to, like discount. Absolutely. People, I've known so many people died of cancer, of course. And, you know, it's a serious topic, but I'm like, Hey dude, you got to make like shit. Life's fucking interesting, man. Like you can't make a wet, like, ah, this is my personality. Like I am very self-deprecating when it comes to all this stuff, man. Same. Like, if I can get through it, anybody can get through it, dude. And I'm not the sharpest, uh, <laughs> spoon in the drawer. You know? Sharpest hammer in the bag, I think is what it is. <laughs> No, it's inspirational, man. And it's it's awesome that you're just vocal about it. Because if you talk about it and somebody goes, this is a super rad dude, cool career, done a million cool jobs. And that guy's saying, yes, I struggle. And I still struggle. You know, even during the documentary, even during the thing that you're trying to inspire people with, you're struggling and you're saying that shit out loud. I think that lets other people go, you know what? Maybe it's all right if I say something. Maybe I can say, no matter what it is. You know what I mean? Call somebody like, fuck I've been in some dark places and I like call my dad. Hey, I'm kind of fucked up, man. Like I'm in a bad way and saying it out loud, you have to own it and then you're accountable for it. And then other people can help you, you know, say, say some positive things, but there's so many tools out there. So I'm super pumped that you're doing this documentary. It seems like, well, now that we've met, we've chatted a little bit. I feel like it's going to be the, the rawest version of all those things in conjunction with your survival story to this day with cancer and everything out, like don't fucking check out, man. You know, you're I'm not in planning on it, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a stubborn motherfucker, dude. My plan is I want to be in six months in better physical shape than I am now. I'm going to be losing a couple things. Yeah. You know, it adds up. There's a toll to the surgeries, but mentally I want to even be better than I am now. I want to be stronger. So I'm going into this thing just, as I'm going to try to keep a, a super strong mental push. And I know the first two days out of surgery, I know I'm going to get kicked in the dick, as I mentioned. Yeah. After that second day, especially the first week, you know how dudes are like, you always have those friends in our communities in the military that are like, hey, uh, you know, don't be a bitch, you know? Yeah. I'm like, hey, hold those off for the first week after. <laughs> then I want them to flood in. Can, you can shoot me, Chris Cather's at Instagram, you know, shoot me like, hey, you, don't be a piece of shit, you know, you, don't, don't quit. Dude, did you, like, you just put blood in the water and I have your personal number. So on the 21st, <laughs> I'm going to be like, pussy. I told, I told Daniel, I was like, hey man, I haven't had one troll yet, man. I guess that means... I'm nobody. Like, where's that troll? And uh, I'll, tr I'll troll you, dude. You <laughs> told me that. I'm not going to respond to you. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. Comments, you know? Don't but, read the comments. Yeah, dude. I'm I'm actually looking forward to because it's like the next chapter, right? So we just need help at this point of the documentary. What we're we just started. Um, so I set up a 501c3 um, called the uh, Brothers Keeper uh, Veterans Foundation which is a, a temp right now it's a mechanism to help people that want to help us out with the uh, fundraising campaign. So we have a landing page called we are brothers .com. It's brothers uh, with an S yep. and you know, people can go on there. If you donate, it is tax exempt. Um, but what I would love to do is when I want to fund the documentary 
uh, through that mechanism. When we finish that, what I want to do is create legacy because, you know, something that lives beyond me, right? So hopefully in a perfect world, that foundation will continue to raise money and simply dole that out to other for-profit or non-profit businesses that are doing real true work to battle the 22 a day. And I want to start small with maybe just one or two strategic partners that we're helping fund, even if it was like four or five grand a year. Fuck yeah, I want to see where that money goes, how it's spent. I'm not taking any money from the documentary. There's no, that is not the point of it. I'm not taking any money. (laughs) It's all been out of pocket. But with the foundation, same thing. I'm not even taking a, there's no salary. It's wide open. I want to do this properly simply to help other dudes that are suffering because, you know, I might not be around very long. Uh, realistically, you know, I'm going to do my damnedest, but it would be super rad if this thing goes on for years. I'm already setting it up for succession. You know, um, the documentary is my primary focus right now because it's like, hey, I don't want to get too far downstream. So that's where my head's at is like, I just want to do a good job on this and reach as many people as possible, Right. So this will be coming out next year. It's all predicated on, you know, the team um, that we bring in as far as doing the wrap up, but of the launch at, uh, you know, early, early next year is the, is the goal. So we'll stay tuned. <laughs> that's fucking awesome, man. Yeah. So one more time, I think that's a great place to wrap. I love your mission statement. I love everything else. Tell them where they can find the foundation. The name again? Yeah, wearebrotherskeeper.com is the landing page. If you want to get involved, we're going to be posting, uh, you know, updates and things like that. We are, we haven't got to the, uh, eventually I'm going to have to force to do a, the uh, uh, Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Remember. But I'm all, you can also follow me at Chris underscore Cathers at Instagram. And I keep people posted that way. They'll see, you know, me going through the surgeries and all that kind of stuff. And when we're on the road filming, and we keep people up to date that way as well. So Awesome, man. You're a true inspiration. I appreciate you having this conversation and invite me in your home. Yeah, appreciate you being here, man. I'm glad my dog didn't bite you. Yeah, yeah, he didn't dick check me or anything. Hey, We're good. not over you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks again. I appreciate you. All right, appreciate it. That concludes today's training. Any questions? <laughs> Woo! Drum titties, boy!